Welcome to our latest episode of Meet the Anutin Kewuk, where we have the honor of featuring a guest who embodies the resilience, wisdom, and spirit of Indigenous leadership. Ruby Littlechild. She's a powerful figure in the realm of Indigenous relations. Currently, she's serving as the National Director at Atkins Realis. Ruby's a proud member of Treaty 6. Her leadership style is a blend of deep-rooted cultural awareness, innovative collaboration, and genuine stakeholder engagement, guiding her successful endeavors in Indigenous community building and economic development. Ruby is born in Massachusetts, Alberta, and Ruby's life has been a unique amalgamation of urban experiences in Edmonton, along with her rich cultural heritage of her First Nations community. This duality has profoundly shaped her worldview and her approach to her career. Ruby's educational journey is as impressive as her professional one. She holds a Bachelor of Arts, a Master of Education, and a Master of Business Administration. Her career spans diverse roles, including working with First Nations tribal governments, the government of Alberta, and various education and engineering institutions. Her commitment to community and social development is evident in her service on numerous government and national boards, including Alberta Child and Family Services Board and the Alberta Historical Resource Foundation. At the core of Ruby's work, is her unwavering passion for promoting healing, higher education, and equality within Canada's infrastructure industry. She stands tirelessly as an advocate for Indigenous inclusion, recognizing the need for a shift in social consciousness and ethical practice to sustain development in First Nation communities. In today's episode, Ruby shares her deeply personal journey as a Plains Cree woman, navigating life between urban and reservation the impact of residential schools on her family, and the importance of education in overcoming challenges. She delves into the topics like lateral violence, oppression in Indigenous communities, and the path towards truth and reconciliation. Ruby also shares light on creating corporate change and significance of embracing ceremony and spirituality in her life. Join us in this profound conversation with Ruby Littlechild, a symbol of inclusive and compassionate leadership, as we explore her journey insights, and the path forward for Indigenous communities and beyond. They wanted me to go to white school. They wanted me to go to mainstream school. I remember asking dad, how come we can't go to the red school? And he's like, he said, it's a, it's a dumb school. But the residential schools taught them to be ashamed to be First Nations, to be Cree. So they carried that with them. They carried that with them and they kind of put that on us as their, on their children too. Awesome, Ruby. It's great to have you. Uh, I know I say this kind of about a lot of people, but ever since I started this, I really had you in mind. I've known you for a few years now and I'm like, hey, there's a strong Indigenous woman I know I can talk to. And uh, to be honest, it's more of just trying to find out some time for you or try to carve some time. So I'm really grateful that you're here and uh, and we'll kind of jump right into it. But First one, like everybody, just a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you grew up, and uh, and we can go from there. Thank you, Michael, for having me here today. I don't necessarily like doing podcasts because I find them very exploitive. <laughs> but I'm like, but Michael's a good guy, so I'll I'll sit down with him. So um, I'm a Plains Cree from Muskogee, Alberta. I was. Uh, Raised on the res until I was 11 and I had a transitory upbringing. Moving back and forth from the city to the res most of my childhood between my parents. They divorced when I was eight years old. And, uh, my dad raised me. I stayed with my dad. Then I went back to the sin and then I moved to the city. And I, because I, I did not like the city, I could not assimilate. I hated the city. So my mom sent me to Blue Quills Residential School. Cause I could, cause I wouldn't go to school, and um, so I went to Blue Quills Residential School for three days. And at the time, I already the knew some of the horrors and the whispers of the residential schools. And I, I stayed there. I, I remember staying there, and the beds were lined up and being put in through the registration process. And I remember looking out the window, looking at all the beds in line, and thinking, "What am I doing?" So I did, I did three three days in residential school, did my time, and then I phoned my mom and I said, okay, I will. I will go to school in the city. Okay. So I made a choice to um, 
So I did. I went, I moved back to the city and I kind of, I, rem- I remember running down the road, getting picked up at the road at the residential school from my mom. I think she just sent me there because, well, again, cause I wouldn't go to school. So I moved to the city and I decided to assimilate. I only went up to grade 10 and I got pregnant. I was 16. I was a teen mom. I had my baby when I was at Edmonton. Again, I was um, a young mom only now. And I think about it, only 16 years old. But I had a baby and I thought, okay, I got to I need to give this baby a better life than I had. Because I came from a broken home of divorce. I um, would be lying if I said I wasn't exposed to an intergenerational trauma growing up as a kid on the res, because I was. Um, not necessarily poverty, more just abuse and violence from, from all family, because it was because when my parents now that they're 69 and 66 and they talk about it, uh, my dad went to residential school from kindergarten to grade 12. And I, he, he was a very angry man growing up. He's like, hey, that's just... But it all came to um, light why in 2015 when he went to do his truth and reconciliation testimony at the Shaw Conference Center. And I, I remember he, um, he hugged this one. And he, he asked me to be there, go be there with him. I remember he hugged this one lady. It was like a high school reunion, I remember, for them all. They were by looking at finding them their pictures in the yearbooks. And um, he hugged this one lady and he said, Oh, she got pregnant in grade in grade nine after after he greeted her. And I looked at him, I said, From who? He said, The priest. And I said, And what happened to the baby? And he's like, They killed it. And he went walking away. And I was like, and I remember looking at walking, watching him walk away, and I realized how normalized abuse was in his life, and how desensitized he was when it came to his life. And and he grew up never telling me the truth because his parents never told him the truth. Now he talks about it. Now that his parents passed on, he talks about the truth and realities because his parents were such devout Catholics. It wasn't until um, his dad died, because his mom died first, my Goko. She was a strong Catholic. She died first, and then my Muslim passed away. And after after my grandfather passed away, my dad went running to the Sundance Lodge. And that was his first time ever. Um, and he always says that that was my that was my point where I, that was my that was his gateway with his dad's passing to go to be able to go embrace our our own ceremonies so he ran to the Sundance Lodge and I was like now he's been sober 18 years my dad and he said it was my dad said it was ceremony that saved him our ceremonies and so that's a that's that's kind of like the same path I took in 2000 when did I start doing 2010 I started doing um I started Sundancing I started um doing sweat lodges. I asked for my spiritual Cree name from my elder. His name, um, my Cree name is Eagle Thunderbird Woman. Kiheo Piheso is Quayo. And I never grew up with culture or ceremony too because my dad, my mom, my dad shunned it because respect for his parents. And my mom grew up traditionally, but she, my mom sought higher education and I, and I, Give her credit for the education I have today because she chose that path. But um, my mom came from the more traditionalist background. So I, I remember going to lodges when I was a kid, night lodges with my mom as a kid. And I, I grew up with respect for the sweet grass and the, the, the smudges. But it's not until when I was 35 years old that I totally immersed myself in culture and ceremony. This was after I finished my, no, I, st- I started doing my master's in education and I started embracing our ceremonies. So that's a big theme of my life is higher education and ceremony. That's what I always, um, I feel that's been a big, um, those two education and ceremony have made a big impact on, on my journey as a, as a, as a First Nations woman. I raised my daughters as a single mom, always being a single mom and 
So single moms are the poorest demographic. First nation single moms are the poorest demographic in Canada. And I um, lived in a city, moved to the city, stayed in the city. My mom and dad still live under res, but I always wanted to escape, first of all, the lateral violence in our community because it's so bad. It's so bad. And I'm very vocal and I speak out about it now because I'm on a board back in my community. And my thought is, if you speak, if you give something light and speak to it, it loses its power. So I'm very vocal about lateral violence. And I did my first master's thesis on violence against Indigenous women. And there I got to learn about uh, patriarchy, oppression, being marginalized. And I got to research on why, uh, like the missing and murdered Indigenous woman epidemic. It's all um, goes back to colonialism. But it also today in 2023, it goes back to our men needing to honor our women more and the fathers needing to be there for their daughters more. And I'm and I realized why I was able to break cycles and grow and be a mother and be a contributing member to society and to raise, be there for my daughters. Is because of my father. I realized my father's influence, and I love my dad. I just love my dad because he always empowers me. He always celebrates me. He's always there for me. He never puts me down. He's always just, I've always been, he's always revered me and put me on a pedestal. And I realized that the importance of fathers in our communities is so important. But a lot of our, a lot of our daughters don't have those fathers today because of residential schools and the breakdown in our family systems. A lot of our, um, there's been a breakdown in, in, our, in our communities when it comes to being a strong father. So I, like I said, I've always been a single mom. I've worked in the city most of my career, worked in mainstream organizations. I was actually, the, I remember I was 30 years old, my five months, five months pregnant, my last month at EI, maternity leave. No, five months, my baby was five months old. I just had her and I was, and I needed a job so bad. So I was 30 years old and I couldn't get a job anywhere. So I emailed the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs for the government of Alberta begging for a job. And my friend said, you're crazy. No one gets a job like that. But I got the job. And I didn't tell them I had a baby, a five-month-old baby, or else I wouldn't have gotten a job. So I got to work with Ralph Klein government. I got to manage the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs office and raise my baby and just it was a turn it was a really and I but that's where I was first exposed to racism. I was such a I had just finished my undergrad degree. I was so naive and so I just, I just thought how, now I think back, I think how arrogant to think I could change the world when I just had my, because I so bad wanted to make a difference in First Nations country. So bad wanted to change, wanting to change the narrative for our people. And I, now I realize, I look back, I'm thinking, what was I, I just, I, I took risks that no one would have taken. It's, they put me in, in, um, precarious situations like working at the ledge and not telling them I had a baby for many years because I, I wouldn't have got the job if I told them I had a baby. But I was a single mom and I needed I needed to work. I needed to provide for my kids. And it didn't get I didn't have no child support. So I did that and then I went to work for I did that for four four years and they lost their election and we got kicked out of the ledge. I remember getting packing up. I went to work at the department, and then um, the, I went to go work for for my own people, First Nations people, and that's when I was exposed to brutal lateral violence. Did that for four years, and that was that was a really eye opener for me because I I I couldn't believe how horrible our people were to each other. Um, I just, I still shake my head to this day that I survived that ordeal. Because it was such a, uh, and again, I was so, how arrogant to think I could save my people. 
But anyway, I helped with the First Nations, Alberta's First Nations consultation policy because my former boss, the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs, she was rolling out the First Nations consultation policy. And the chief's office called me and they said, come help us, come help us, come help us create our own First Nations consultation policy. So I went and worked with um, my community, my people, but I, it was like, like I said, it was a really brutal experience. And I told my dad, I said, I will never work in First Nations country again. I said, it was so brutal. I left with arrows in my back. And he said, don't say that. These are your people. But I, then I learned, again, so I did my master's in education, and that's when I learned about oppression, how the oppressed become the oppressors, the effects of colonialism on our people, um, how self residential schools taught self-loathing and self-hate, so they projected on each other. And I just, I became, and I became conscious of it. And now that I'm conscious of it, I don't perpetuate it because... When you know better, you do better. And I tell my community members that now that I'm on a board back home, last this past weekend we did we had lateral violence training, and I kind of pushed that because um again I just and I'm glad they went through with the training for the community and a lot of community members they they don't know what lateral violence is. A lot of our people they don't even know residential schools what intergenerational trauma is because. Our, because our parents were too broken and too oppressed to share that truth with us. It's just part, they, they uh, and I see that now, like I see that when I look back at my childhood and my youth, my parents didn't tell me about that they weren't allowed to go into the liquor stores until they were in, in the late 60s, that they weren't allowed to sing, pray, or dance. In 1885, there was a banning of our ceremonies. And we weren't allowed to sing, pray, or dance, or speak our language. We were put in jail. And it wasn't until the 1960s that we were allowed to start praying and doing that all again. And my parents didn't teach me that because they were so, um, just like they just accepted their oppression that they didn't teach me. They didn't even teach me. My parents speak fluent Creek, fluent. They, all, they, they speak it all the time to each other. And I told them one day, I said, and because I have like two master's degrees and an undergrad and I remember telling them, I said, if I knew my language, I'd be so powerful. And they said their hearts just drop. <sighs> but now I like when they like when they speak it, I understand it because they speak it so often and fluently in front of me. But they they wanted me to go to white school. They wanted me to go to mainstream school. I remember asking dad, how come we can't go to the res school? And he's like, he said it's a, it's a dumb school but the residential schools taught them to be ashamed to be first nations to be Cree. so they carried that with them they carried that with them and they kind of put that on us as their on their children too so not i don't know i don't know if it was shame because then we moved to the city and we were exposed to racism and again we we didn't we didn't we didn't practice our ceremonies we had we didn't even, like, I was like, it wasn't until I started doing ceremony, till I got my Cree name, till I started understanding the history of who we are, of residential schools and colonization. And when I found out my bloodline was wandering spirit. Wandering spirit was a big bear agreed to treaty number six on our behalf. He had a spiritual warrior named wandering spirit. And that was who that's who he went to for spiritual guidance. Wandering Spirit was known for his um he pushed his ability to shape shift um, just his, his spiritual powers. So a, a lot of my uncles and my healers, they come from that bloodline where they can I know, I know. And it's really hard because the white world doesn't get this, but but they can levitate, they can heal people. They just have magical spiritual powers, and that's my bloodline, and I'm very proud of it. Because um, yeah, it's been a, I'm very proud of my spiritual ancestors, and I, which is why I've immersed. I when I immersed myself, and when I got to learn my history and my roots, I was like, wow, we come from royalty. So I really embrace that part of who I am, and that's on my mom's side. My dad too. My dad's proud of it. My dad's proud of, like my dad believes in ceremonies now. He when the Pope came last year, he's 
he respect he was so happy that the Pope went uh, got wheeled right by my Gokum's grave. Because he said your Gokum was such a strong Catholic and he was so happy that the Pope got wheeled right by and he that's for his mom's sake, but he doesn't my dad's very um truthful now and he realizes the damage of the residential schools and the church on our people because of residential schools the abused became the abusers in our communities and our families and again that's still taboo in our communities and a lot of healing still needs to take place because no one likes to talk bad about the churches so I kind of just respect kind of just follow my own path and, and do the ceremony Anyway, <laughs> oh, ciao, Ruby. Um, there's so much, so much to unpack there. You're no wonder you are where you are and you do what you do. That's a that's an amazing. That's just part of the journey, and that's just a. There's so many dips and dives and um, and things in there, and all the learnings along the way. Like holy cow, um, I've learned that in my past. I would have right away wanted to interject and put how important I am, but I'm learning shut up and listen to people um oh it's amazing ruby that's awesome uh i guess this even just begin unpacking that like your your background obviously the things you went through and the things you've seen uh getting a getting a taste of that residential school life and looking at that and, and staring down the barrel of it um i always wondered i was like how is this woman so educated like how did she do all this stuff and like, that would scare me into education for a lifetime i think i would just live at the university after that um, but in your experience, obviously with all the, with all the education you do have, is there a, is there a way to even articulate that? Cause I know you worked in schools to, to, to really the importance of that education for, for our youth and for even, even the younger people out there that you can always go back to school. If you have kids, you can go back to school. You've learned that you've done that, but just the importance of it and how, how far that's taken you. Um, in your life and in your career? Education, like I said, has been my salvation. I, I didn't have white or male privilege. And again, I was a single mom, no child support in the city, paying $1,300 of rent, plus utilities, raising two girls. So I had to be a role model. And uh, so I um, I went after, I sought higher education. And again, my, I got had to get student loans. My, my band wouldn't fund me. Again, all, there's all the lateral violence there. So I had to take, uh, kind of navigate the system. And I always say, because I, I didn't have white or male privilege and I, I wanted a job. I wanted to keep working in mainstream. I didn't want to go back to the res because of the lateral violence. I wanted to protect my daughters. I wanted to give them a home and a safe space. So I um, always went to school. I always worked, I always did two jobs and I always went to school. All my girls have ever seen was mom working and going to school, providing, always, they, they never went without, making sure I provided for them. I just, I, I kind of wore my blinders and stayed focused and knew that this was, this was the only way I was going to make a better life for myself and my daughters was to get that, get that education. I remember when I did my MED, my, when I got my master's in education, I, I, um, I left, I left where I left first nations country and I got a job working at a PEGA with engineers and um, my CEO, bless his soul. I always, I was just thinking about him yesterday. I don't know where he is. White man, male privilege, MBA, PN, and I went to his office and I said, I want to do an MBA. And he had an MBA, his degree. I said, do you think I'm being too ambitious if I do an MBA? And he said, no, Ruby, keep going. So I did my, M I got my MBA, took four years, but again, it was weekends and I had to pay for it myself. I had to be resourceful. And I, um, I just always just, I knew I knew I had to get educated. I now I'm realizing is I do a PhD, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. But a lot of my research was based on, like, even when I said when I was doing my MBA, a lot of my PhD professors had no clue of First Nations people. They had no clue of residential schools and colonialism and intergenerational trauma. I remember my CEO at a PEGA. He said, 
because our office was Scotia Building downtown Edmonton. He said, why are your people always drunk and passed out on the streets when I come in the morning? And I said, intergenerational trauma from residential schools. He's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and this was beginning, the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Actions came out in 2015. And this was in 2015 when, when it started, um, when everything started coming to light. What like what really happened to First Nations people and with the residential schools? So it's yeah, it's, I've always the path of education, and I encourage you to go get educated, know your culture, get to know your roots, get to know your history. Um, when you know who you are, you can. There's there's no limit to what you can do because you know who you are, and and you can put that in your. Um, with your when you're seeking higher education it kind of all comes together because for me it all came together when I once I got once I knew my history and I got to learn about colonialism and residential schools and the Indian Act it, everything all made sense why why all the chaos why all the poverty on the res why all the why all the lateral violence I was like once it makes sense you just start taking a higher road higher consciousness no, that all makes sense, Ruby. Holy cow. And, uh, and you mentioned a few things in there too. I, I really feel that, uh, like that lateral violence and that it's almost like that whole crab in a bucket kind of thing, right? Pulling you down. Who do you think you are? I'm sure mm-hmm. you have more than enough stories about that, of who, who you think you are getting all this education, especially being a woman, being a single mom, like you have, you had every excuse to, to not, right? You had every excuse to just say the world's such a bad place and you've had such a hard life and just whatever that looks like right so oh and i nah i want i'd rather walk on air (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's amazing um you mentioned there too like even just having that that real quick discussion he probably didn't even think about it right but just telling you to keep going and why can't you do an mba um but like a mentorship or any kind of someone to look up to right and um Along your journey, I'm sure you've had many, but like, have is there any real examples aside from that one that really stand out as far as mentorship or anyone that's kind of maybe nudged you in the right direction? When I look back to where I am today and who I am and working in the engineering world, I'm truly grateful to Gary Bosgood. And I always tell him that when I see him because he kind of, he doesn't even realize at the at the time when, when I got hired at a PEGA because he was on a hiring panel. I was in such a dark place as a as a as a First Nations woman in the city, and I was feeling so disempowered and uh, not safe. That when he hired me, he kind and all of a sudden I didn't like I didn't know about the the code of ethics of engineers like I till I got till I got put into my role, the values that they have to take as professionals. Cause I, cause, and remember, I came from Indian country where lateral violence was brutal. And all of a sudden, I got put into this place where engineers signed these, they, they have this code of ethics and professionalism. And that was a first for me. And I was like, I was up to, I was like, I felt like I was in heaven after because everyone was so professional and kind. I did get exposed to racism. I would be lying if I said I didn't, but I did. But, but I had. Um, just because I got that job, it really took me to a higher level, a higher consciousness. And um, it made me believe in the world and humanity again, working with engineers. It's, and then engineer, the engineering world has been good to me to this day as a First Nations free woman. And I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've received from my engineer colleagues and friends and associates that I met at Apega. Because of those, I, I'm here at Atkins Realis, National Director of Indigenous Relations. And now people are saying, oh, they're, they're a different breed, but I find I, I really admire their ethics and their professionalism. And because it's, I don't have that at First Nations country. <laughs> No, I hear you. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I see a lot of that and I work around a lot of these people and everyone always puts me in that in that category, right? So you're an engineer and I'm like, well, I'm not really. I'm a 
I'm a carpenter. They're just brought me here to, they just brought me here to break your knees if I have to. But, um, but yeah, no, it's interesting around all those people and so smart. Hey, a lot of them, it just, it's, it's crazy how smart these people are. Um, global and I'm like, it's, uh, I've learned that they make me want to be a better human and just to be a better leader. So I, and that's what I like about it because I'm constantly evolving and growing with them. No, that all makes sense. It all makes sense. No, absolutely. But I've always had to work with a white man who was pro-Indigenous and to get stuff done. And it shouldn't be like that, but that's my reality as a First Nations woman. And I'm grateful for the allies and champions I've met in my career who have helped make life better for Indigenous First Nations people in Canada. Yeah. And that's, and that's so refreshing too, to hear that from you. Like it's real. Right. It, and I, I know we've had private conversations about that too. My rose colored glasses are broken on the floor kind of thing. Right. And yeah. to, uh, I felt the exact same way you did of, of, uh, who did I think I was very ignorant to the whole, to the whole situation and really smacked me in the face. But, um, at the same thing, you're, you're telling the truth, right. As an indigenous woman, it's not easy and it's, there's going to be barriers and there's going to be you're going to have to learn some tips and tricks and figure out ways to get through it. And um, you're a shining example of that. But in your previous, just, just recently, you talked about um, uh, your, your position now with uh, Atkins Vialis that I've just learned how to say that. Uh, but yeah, so you're talk about that, talk about that role now where you're at and what that looks like. This is, this is inspiring to not just indigenous people just in general man it's 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 awesome to, see. Had to um educate share uh, bring my colleagues to the first nations community uh, my leadership it's more like indigenizing a company <laughs> we launched our reconciliation plan three weeks ago october 17th we launched it in vancouver that was a that was three and a half years of work and i'm not going to take the credit because we have, like, again, non-Indigenous allies across the company who have stepped up, who do the work. I'm just, I, I just kind of make sure that uh, we do it in a, in a good way, in the right way, that we're not going to um, get First Nations people angry, that, we, that we're doing it in, in alignment. I'm... Um, and like I said, it's my leadership, my non-Indigenous allies and champions across the company. My big boss in England, he came here and helped launch it. And he's been an ally and a champion. I brought him to my res. I, I hung out with him for three days. I showed him the Sundance ceremony while it was while it was going on. I showed him, I brought him to powwow where they welcomed him in. And I think he, it was really eye-opener for him. Come in, being in London, England, and being a global leader, and, and having to um, understand. So now he's declared himself a, an ally to First Nations people. He's taking all these courses at the U of A on the, the Indigenous Indigenous Course Canada and the stereotypes. So I'm really grateful for his leadership. Uh, when I started at the formerly SNC Lavalin, I said, "You guys need an Indigenous framework and a uh, reconciliation plan." So. We launched one, we created one, we did interviews with everybody internally and externally. We, uh, we created an Indigenous awareness training module that's mandatory for all employees of the company. I asked that it be authentic so it hits on the residential schools and oppression and colonialism and how the railroad was coming west and what happened to our people and I'm really glad that my my colleagues and leadership allowed me to share in the most authentic way and I don't and I don't share in a way to make people feel guilty because that's I I'm not into making people feel bad I want but I'm big on truth I'm big on truth so I want I want Canadians and colleagues to know the truth and reality of our of what happened and the fact that a lot of Canadians don't realize that, that we still live in prevalent poverty in our communities that once you pull into Muscochis, my res you you lose cell service like there's still so much disparity and inequality that 
lot of Canadians don't know about, like the fact that my mother's water is yellow and and the it's non drinkable. Like she has to get her, and like it's just not even. I don't even know how they shower in that water. But this is still a reality in Canada. And this is Canada. So there's still a lot of work to do. We're not over yet. This is just the beginning, but I'm really grateful for the company where I'm at. I'm in a safe space. I like the fact that I'm in a safe space. I like the fact that I'm now at the corporate level. Indigenous relations is now at the corporate level. It's not hidden away in, in one of the business units. It's we're taking a seat at the table. They're listening. Um, just, we just keep going. We got to keep making those strides and try and make the world a better place. No, oh, that's, that's so important. What's, uh, I'm not really big on labels, but what's, what's your actual title? What's your job title? National Director Indigenous Relations. Holy cow, look at that. So you see, like, I mean, that's... I got, I got to pick my own title. <laughs> well, they treat me really good. They, and I'm really grateful. Like I said, I feel safe. I, it, I, I'm allowed to be me. I'm, a, I'm allowed to be... I don't have to pretend. I don't have to pretend that I... I don't have to have white privilege. I'm allowed to be me. And they just, it's, and I love that about my colleagues and our collaborative meetings is that they accept me for my, my walking in two worlds and not like, because I've worked in mainstream most of my career and I've been exposed to racism, maybe, maybe because I still had unresolved trauma back then and I've been able to work through it now as an, as, as an, as an adult and own it, um, it, it wasn't always easy working in the white world. I would lose my voice. Some days, I I when I worked in 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 uh, when I, in my younger years, I I would literally lose my voice. But I realized now it, that was my trauma from even my parents' oppression. Like, and I was, and I really had to process a lot of the trauma of. of and because my parents were healing, especially my dad, because he was healing, I was healing. Because he was telling the truth, I was able to tell the truth. So I was really grateful for it. Like, but if, if, like to, if my dad had stayed, if my dad had stayed angry and an alcoholic and, and just, just if, if he had stayed, I probably wouldn't have grown. I'm really good. Because my dad healed, I was able to. And I'm still able to heal and grow. I'm wow. not perfect, but I'm not where yeah. I used to be. No one, no one is. But that's that's amazing, and that's a shining example. And I preach a lot about that of of men really need to step up um, and be the fathers and be those role models that they need to be. And you're you're a great example of that, right? Like I talk about it a lot, but you're an actual example of it. Of yeah, you can mess up your life, you can do different things as a dad, but you can turn it around, and those kids still see it, no matter what their age is. Yeah. They'll, they'll they'll really reap the benefits of it. It's amazing to see and amazing to hear. Yeah. Um, you you kind of you mentioned that walking in two worlds. I had a question about that of what that actually looked like. I know you've been touching on it quite a bit, but with uh, I know Esther uh, Atkins Realis lets you do uh, lets you do that a little bit more and a little bit more freely. But what what that looked like in the past? I know you said you lost your voice um, and you just kind of lost yourself in it. But was there did you feel a lot, was there a lot of shame associated with that? Were you trying to dive into this world and then still looking back on the past, right? And yeah, I was trying to leave my trauma behind and my, my Nehia world behind. Like I wasn't, I wasn't ashamed. It's just that there was so much hurt and pain that, that, that carried from my res life and my, that I, I wasn't being true to myself. So I kind of adopted the, the Munyao, the white world value system and, and the mentality. And I remember, I remember my, my elders and even my parents saying, you'll never be a white woman. You'll never, you, I don't know why, because, because I remember I'm crying to my elder because I would, I, I would encounter racism from people in that at my you know places of work and I go crying to my elder and say why am I why put myself like why 
I, but I wasn't, again, because at the time I wasn't really owning my, my Nehiawe Square, my Cree woman identity. I wasn't owning it. I wasn't proud of it. I was actually trying to brush it under the table. I even had blonde hair. Blonde. And now I really I was I was trying to run and I was I was ashamed, but I was also hurt because I was hurt because because of all the lateral violence I experienced in First Nations country. I just wanted to shut that part of my life out. But then I realized like when I started doing more ceremony, like I Sundance 10 years in a row and started going to the sweat lodge, I started realizing that innately I'm a Innately, inherently, I'm a Cree woman. I'm a Nehiawe Square. I'm Eagle Thunderbird woman. It's who I am. It's why I survived. It's it's what's taken care of me all these life, all my life. And it made me realize that. And I'm, we're spiritual people first and foremost. Even before colonization, we were spiritual people first and foremost. So I had to own it. Then I said, so once I started becoming one, like owning my my transitory upbringing, owning my my roots and even the trauma, owning the intergenerational trauma and making peace with it, I started um, flourishing. I started not being scared. I started not living in fear. I started I started being able to speak up for myself and and to talk to Muniao men, white men, and not be afraid to share and be. Whereas before I would always, you know, kind of I would just, you know, but I, it's, it's all coming together. I'm not where I, where I, sh- where I should be, but I'm not where I used to be. And again, it's been a, I'm really grateful for the accepting and work environment I am where I'm at, at, at Atkins Realis. So I'm grateful for my leadership. I'm grateful for those who see value in me, who created space. A lot of non-Indigenous engineers, leaders, slash leaders. They created space for me to be. They created space for our people. They see the inequality and they say, no, we got to do more. We got to do more. And that's not to say I haven't met up with gatekeepers because there are still gatekeepers, but I still, I navigate it. I've learned to navigate the, the this world and find the allies and the champions. Actually, actually the allies and champions find me and we just keep working and the momentum's building. And I and I know it's gonna get better for our people. It is. It is. Oh, it has to. Yeah, I know. Especially with people like you out there pushing, it's gonna happen. Um, you did mention ceremony too, like with uh, with your dad finding it, and then then you finding it. And I know that's probably a, a spot where a lot of people, especially like my generation or our generation, really is just like you've you've grown up without it, and then now it's searching searching for it, right? And um even just just quick you can touch on it but like what were some of the steps even in just just beginning to find that and how can a person that's that wants to search that out how can they how can they start even i i um i started dealing with my trauma and i started um this was like when i was 35 when i was 35 i started dealing with my trauma and, and the unspoken truths and the hurts of my my world and so I started I I wanted again my fears because I was I I lived in fear most of my life but I wanted to deal with them my 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 garbage (laughs) so I um did I do I think I went I went to the Sundance Lodge I went to I went to go I went to go see a healer he passed on he was he was actually one of wandering spirits grandsons and and I went to go see him, and he kind of made me go to the Sundance Lodge and Small Boy Camp by Kinton Rob. It's way up in the mountains. And I went to go. So I Sundance there for four years, and then I started smudging regularly, started going to his sweats. And then I met another healer, a wandering spirit healer, by Bloodline. And he kind of taught me more. He taught me how to make smudges taught me how to um, pray, how to honor our ancestors. He taught me our roots and our, our bloodline. The, it, I kind of just wanted it 
and I prayed for it. But I was out, I remembered, and I always did offerings. Like I always do um, offerings to our, to our ancestors because I was taught that we have to give. We're not takers. We have to give. Our ancestors are take care of us. So, you know, I do um, tobacco ties. I'll make prayer tobacco ties and salmon and berries, and I'll go pray for what I want. And it's something that I do all the time because it's my elders have taught me to always pray. And go, like I was, I went to sweat last weekend, went to sweat ceremony. I, how did I come upon it? I think I prayed for, prayed for guidance. I prayed for people to teach me, to guide me because I wanted to learn so bad. Um, I was told that our people are so hungry for ceremony and culture now that they don't know where to turn. I used to go to the Alberta Hospital in Edmonton because I lived in Edmonton and they have a sweat there every Friday at noon. It's open to the public. So I would go there too and I'd pray. I'd go there every Friday and go sweat, learn. I was new to this. So I didn't, I too was searching. I too um, was scared I was going to offend the healers and the elders. I too was scared that I wouldn't belong, that no one would make space for me, that people would laugh at me. But it all worked out in the end and I ended up um, learning more and more and more each year. Oh, and that's so important, I think, is, is all the, like all of us, all these people are, are searching all the time, right? Searching and searching and yeah. the world's so fast around us and we have all the information, especially at our fingertips now and which is, which is good and bad, right? But just, just to find that, find where we belong, right? And I think that's where a lot of, a lot of this stuff comes from, like just wandering, not knowing, right? And, and chasing things that aren't real mm -hmm. um, and really needing to slow down and, and really figure out what is real and what's, what's- I don't need to belong but I didn't feel I belonged in my community because of all the lateral violence. And like, even in my home blood community, my dad, I was like, this is your community. This is where you're from. But I didn't feel that. So I had, I searched spiritually. And once it started coming together in, in here, I don't need to belong anywhere. You know what I mean? Now that I, now that I'm here, now that I'm whole here and I know who I am, I don't, I'm not desperate to belong on my res. Like I'll go home and help and talk, but I don't have that insecurity anymore. Yeah, no, I, I everything you've been saying is right along that chain. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I was, I was, um, I was, uh, I was an alcoholic for, for a lot of years and um, until you start breaking that down and, and seeing behind it and really dealing with your problems, I hit a depression after because that was always the ticket out, right? To just hide my fear, or like hide everything, hide the fear, hide the shame, hide everything and just get drunk and, and block out and forget about it, right? So yeah. now you start opening that door, it's like, oh boy, now we got to really start chasing some, getting rid of some demons here. So it's uh, it's interesting. And uh, like you said, as soon as you start, as soon as you start acknowledging those, nothing else really hurts, right? It, it loses its power. Yeah. It's like, yeah, sloppy drunk. Yeah, okay, that's me, but I'm going to talk about it now. And carry on and make it lose its power instead of being being so uh fearful of it so no that's amazing um i like Ed, i know you're uh i know you're a big important lady now at the national national level uh just to wrap it up one of the last questions is uh we talk a lot about youth we talk a lot about direction of of where things are going and do you do you have kind of a not a canned answer but what do you typically say to uh to youth out there that that are looking for something or maybe in grade eight grade nine and, and looking for some direction is there is there anything that you can uh you can think of now with all your experience especially on the corporate level of seeing seeing different avenues kids can take we that... need more first nations indigenous people at the corp in the corporate world it's not as intimidating as it looks and it's uh, so i encourage students to get their business get their business degrees. Um, I I told my daughter, don't go into teaching. Don't go into social work. Because you know what? I just get, our people, we know the horror stories. We know the intergenerational trauma. We know the ugliness. 
Now I feel our people deserve goodness and intergenerational wealth and uh, prosperity and peacefulness. And there's so, and I know it's, it's still, when I go home to my community, I know it's, that's still a long way off because I still see our people still living in oppressive conditions. But I long for the day where where the foster system is not full of First Nations children. The jail system, justice system is not full of First Nations people. Um, but I tell my daughter, like, to, my daughter's learned, like, she knows, she now she knows about residentials and schools and colonialism. But I tell them to go further, to want more, strive for more, dream bigger. I know it because there's still the, in our, com in comparison between on-reserve and off-reserve education, it, there's still a, a funding gap there. That still needs, that's why we, we still, that's why we don't have engineers. That's why we don't have business students. And besides on a reserve, the last thing on our students' mind is business and science and engineering when you're hungry. There's still a lot of work to do, but I'm grateful for the journey and the allies and the chaplains, education and ceremony. Oh, I agree with all of that. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, with every, is there, uh, is there any, if one of people want to know more about what you're doing or what you're up to, is there any way for, uh, for people to do that? Email me at ruby.littlechild at atkinsrealist.com. Okay. I'll reach out to me on LinkedIn. Okay. I'll make sure I put your LinkedIn and, and that on there. Um, well, that's deadly. It's been awesome. I mean, like I said, I've, I've always, I've been wanting to talk for you for a while and, uh, you've <laughs> we just scratched the surface there's gonna be there's a million questions off everything you talked about but uh no it's amazing and it's amazing to see what you're doing and continue doing and keep growing and uh it really is a shining light to know that there's people out there doing this stuff and it gives hope to a lot of indigenous people that you know feel hopeless it's uh it's pretty special to see what you're doing so thank you i really thank appreciate you. your time thank you michael thank you